Hello and welcome to another episode of Jackson Talks, everybody. With me, your host, Aaron Mashbitz, a.k.a. Jackson Stone. This is episode 117 of Jackson Talks, everybody. And we got another amazing guest, Big Fitz. How you doing, man? Welcome to the show. 117 episodes? 117. Wow. That's a lot. That's impressive. Now I feel pressure. That's going to be tough. (laughs) I mean, yeah, dude. I've been... I'm as consistent as I can possibly be with this podcast every Tuesday. Nice. Releasing an episode. And it's been pretty sweet so far. Excited to be here, man. Like I said, a lot of stuff you're involved in, uh, you know, I feel pretty strongly about. And, um, you know, it's a good chance to kind of show the other side of, you know, some of the things that you've been involved in and some of the things that that we do. Uh, I was actually just talking to uh, uh, Presley Mm -hmm. recently about how, like, when I first met you, you still had the long hair. You had that, that heel character. and Oh, yeah. I was like, man, I bet this guy's a jerk. You came to training. I was like, I don't even want to talk to this guy. He's going to be mean. And then, like, you're not at all. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. That's funny. I saw Presley uh, a couple days ago uh, as we record this at Casey Clay's wedding. Oh, right. Which was very cool. Nice. Very cool. But before we get really into the meat and bones of what you're doing... Sure. Pre-wrestling, post-wrestling, while you're wrestling, all that in between. I have a very important question to ask you. Very important question. Okay. Very important question. The theme of this podcast. And so now, since we have no distractions, phones are put away, we have some uninterrupted time. My friend, how are you doing? Like, really, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Um, I, you know, I feel like I'm finally at a point where... Uh, the things that I have that I struggle with are like not insurmountable. Mm. Um, really just feeling like there's healthy coping mechanisms and stuff. Like I was just talking to somebody the other day about, you know, some of the problems that Amanda and I had in our marriage and, you know, kind of the epiphany that like we haven't really gotten all that better at not irritating each other, you know, Mm. but the, the, the thing that's flipped is, when we catch that happening, you know, I'll, I'll say something that, you know, in the heat of the moment that maybe is a little bit insensitive, we're able to kind of intercept, you know, you know what, that wasn't fair. We're not, we're not going to go down that road, you know, let's turn this in a more productive direction. And so I feel like behaviors are tough to change, but you can always control like your response mm-hmm. to those things. And so I finally feel like we're at a point, both, you know, us as a couple and individually where we can intercept those things. We can intercept those problems, those triggers, whatever they are, um, and, and, you know, find a, a healthy path in another direction, which is really cool. I think I'm, you know, it, it took me till Tuesday, I'll be 40. So it took me till almost 40 years old to kind of get to that point, but you know, doing real good. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. I, it's scary. I kind of wanted to just say it's my 39th birthday again and see if I can ride that for a couple of years. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think that works though. I just hit 30 in June. And I think that we're all getting better with age. You know, you just you just said something right before we started recording about what your pastor was speaking about mm-hmm. um, in his sermon today. Oh, that was great. About life experience. And that's all we're doing, right? We're just putting like these little, sometimes really big nuggets of experience into mm-hmm. our bag. And we're able to handle, like you're saying situations a little bit better yeah. because we can control our response. We can take, we can have that gap in between 
the stimulus and the response mm-hmm. to like take a breath, think about how we might have previously reacted, think about how what we previously did was not the best way, how we want to be better moving forward. Okay, now I have that experience. Now my response can be much better. And so at 40, maybe that's when you learn exactly mm-hmm. everything that you need to learn. You know, uh, that's a good point. I was just talking with Amanda the other day about, you know, how would our trajectory have changed had we, you know, had we found re-engage earlier, for example, or, or things like that. And, um, you know, the, the things that you learn, but it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a catch 22, right? You're not going to get those experiences. You're not going to get that even developing emotional intelligence. That's something that it doesn't just happen overnight. It, it's a, like a lifelong progression. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's good. And I, you know, I'm at the point now too, where, you know, you're always second guessing yourself, especially when you have a, a child. Um, you know, my daughter recently went to medieval times, right? That's really fun. And uh, we're going again at the end of the month because I didn't get to go that night because I was booked. But uh, she texted Amanda and said, this night is cute, you know, and took a picture of one of the nights. And she's totally like got probably her first legitimate crush. Right? Yeah. And so I texted Amanda back, you know, I'm really I'm really happy that like you guys have that relationship where she doesn't feel embarrassed at all about telling you about a guy she thinks is cute and she's crushing on, um, you know, and that's that's special. That's your know, mommy daughter thing. That's good. And like 20 minutes later, she was texting me about the same thing. Like, and so I kind of felt like I'm making progress as a dad. Like if, if my daughter's texting me about a crush, that's cool. Um, so yeah, it doesn't happen overnight. 40, it's the big scary one, but you know, I feel like I've got, uh, you know, a handle not only professionally, but personally, um, much better than I did, you know, 10 or even five years ago. So it's pretty good. Still a scary number though. That's why I bought the car. You know, <laughs> what car did you buy? I, I, I went and did the. I went and bought a Corvette. <laughs> did you? And I got the New Balance shoes, and I even got the stupid little dorky polo. Total Corvette dork now. So. How do you get into a Corvette? <laughs> carefully. Uh, for the, okay, for those carefully. For those we that should are not, film it and cut it in here, and we could definitely yeah. do that. Actually, for those that are not watching on YouTube, just like explain how big you are. I am. Barefoot, legit, six foot seven, three hundred and fifty pounds. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, getting into the as a matter of fact, you'll see. We, we should go out there and do it at some point. When I get in, I have to sit in sideways, and then I have to kind of wedge my head underneath, and then I have to turn my legs sideways and slide them in at a perfect angle. And if I mess up, I hit the trunk release, and then I got to get out and go to the back and start over again. So, once I'm in, it's fine. If but I have to do like the gangster lean because the roof's low. It does take some effort to get in though. Yeah, it's it, it doesn't have a lot of cargo space. It's not very efficient. It's a pain in the neck to get in and out of. It's uncomfortable and I love it. I love it so much. We wanted one since I was a kid, which coincidentally, when I was a kid was the last time I could properly fit in one. Uh, and so, you know, I went and did the, the, the midlife crisis thing and went and bought a Corvette. <laughs> Wow. For okay, so for even more context, those have seen have been around me in person. I'm I'm six two, two hundred and eighteen pounds. That's not a small person. No. And my friend here <laughs> dwarfs me. So that's cool. Yeah. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, you're now gonna see the Corvette and <laughs> big face yeah. get into it. Uh, if you're watching if you're just listening to it, you should go to the YouTube channel and check it out. For but, sure, that would be funny. My name's Big Fitz. This is my Corvette. I'm oh. six, 
Six foot seven, 350 pounds. This is how you get into a Corvette when you're giant. We have some rain going on, but we're gonna do the best. So the first thing you gotta do is you gotta sit in sideways. <laughs> now there's a button in there right next to where your knee goes that opens the trunk. So this is very important. If you mess this up, you gotta get out, shut the trunk, and start again. I sit in sideways, right? And then I kinda have to do that. Legs at an angle. Then I have to slowly slide them down into the under the steering wheel. And you're in. And I'm in. <laughs> and then I have to sit kind of at a gangster lean. That's Otherwise, amazing. My head hits the, the roof. So there you have it. Gorgeous. So is that is that really what led to the purpose or, or the purchase or was there anything <clears throat> else? Um not exactly. So, like, uh, you know, I make jokes about it, of course, but um, I've been a motorcycle rider for, oh gosh, well over 20 years now. I, I even taught the safety course for a few years, the MSF class. Um, and uh, a while back, I went to go for a ride and I asked Amanda if she wanted to go, because that's kind of our thing. And uh, she said, nah, I'm good. Well, that, that, that kept happening. She kept saying no. And so, as a result, because my riding was really about spending time with her. Mm -hmm. So the bike was collecting dust and finally I said, Hey, what's going on? It's been months and you haven't gone on a ride with me. And she said, yeah, all the distracted drivers and stuff, like I don't feel safe on it anymore. And I, mm. I really don't want to do it anymore. So why don't you just go ahead and sell my gear? And you know, I thought about it. So I said, I don't really care about the riding. Like that was just our time to be together and to go somewhere. And you know, we do the thing where we're riding along and she's on the back eating snacks and I, she's, you know, I'm, Got my hand on her thigh, kind of thing. Like that's special. Yeah, and and I said, you know, I really don't. I it kind of had a, it kind of hit me all at once. I really don't care about this hobby if my wife's not involved. So I just decided to sell the thing. Well, I've wanted a Corvette for years, and I'll do the thing that a lot of guys who are into cars do: just casually browsing Facebook Marketplace. Mm. And every time I see a Corvette, you know, I'm like, oh man, look at that. And, uh, you know, wives notice that sort of thing. So I'm scrolling Facebook Marketplace one night, and I'm flipping through pictures of a white Corvette with a red interior. White Corvette with a red interior. Yeah. That sounds sweet. It is. And, and then I got some stripes put on the back of it, too. But uh, she's like, your truck is paid for, and you don't do truck things in it. Why don't you just go get yourself a Corvette? And I said, you know what? That's not a bad idea. So, um, so I started looking. You know, I... I I was basically using my truck as just like, I never used it for truck things. Yeah. I just was using it to commute and go to shows and, uh, and it was paid for. Yeah. So I, I found a nice, uh, C7 Corvette and had a paid off trade and just bought my dream car. So, wow. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And then, you know, my wife is laughing at me watching me get in it and, um, so we yeah, take she's it, much smaller than oh, me, so way she smaller. probably she's has like, an easier time. Yeah, she's like 5'4 and a buck 20, I yeah. think, and, <laughs> and, uh, or 5'5. Five five and, um, and so it's kind of just morphed into now, like, oh, we're going to go to lunch, we're going to go take a drive or whatever, we'll take the top off and do that instead of the motorcycle. So um, so it still equates to some special bonding time. Exactly. And same thing, my daughter, we would go on motorcycle rides too, and uh, Mama would never say so, but she was never comfortable with Brooklyn on the motorcycle. So, um, but now, you know, me and her will load up in the Corvette. Our thing is, you know, the quick trip gas stations, there's one near our house. It's got a couple of, uh, tables out front with the umbrellas and stuff. Sure. So 
about every week or so, we'll take the Corvette over there, um, go in and get some junk food, you know, mm-hmm. sit outside on those tables and just, just hang out and BS right. for a while, you know. And it's, uh, it's, it's funny because, like, it's just a trip to the gas station, right? But my, my daughter cherishes those times, and so do I. You know, it's, yeah. It's really cool time, so. She loves when I pick her up from school in it, too. Of course. Is there any tunes playing when you go? Uh, yeah. Usually I put on, well, when it's just me, mm-hmm. I play all the nonsense that I'm into, the hair bands and stuff. Um, when, when I'm with my daughter, though, we're listening to, like, she's really into, like, metal remixes of video game music. So, like, we'll listen to, like, Power Glove or, or things that sound like that. Like, she really likes uh, Dragon Force, which is cool. Mm. Um, as a matter of fact, one of those two is going to be her first concert. I just need to find out who's touring first. But uh, it's a good time. Amazing. That is very special. Yeah. I'm really fortunate, man. Me and my daughter, we get along real great. And especially considering kind of where we were three years ago, it's, uh, I feel very blessed to have the family life that we do. Yeah. So. Well, before we get into some of that. Sure. You did mention re-engage, which I want to I wanna touch on what that means, just not this second. Sure. You are in wrestling. That's mm-hmm. how we met. Um, as being professional wrestlers, you're kind of in the midst of being a pro wrestler now. You took yeah. a little bit of a break because you had surgery on your hand. Uh, I'm not really wrestling anymore, but I mostly want to talk about what you did before wrestling. Sure. So if you want to, if you want to give the people some insight on what what happened, uh, where to be in your life before that, and then why maybe why you got into wrestling. Where to begin? Oh, I, I love telling that story too. But uh, what, let's see, where to begin? Um, uh, I grew up in California. Um, I grew up pretty poor, actually, which uh, is funny because some of those habits haven't left, right? Like, I still feel a twinge of guilt. For example, if I make a peanut butter jelly sandwich, I put too much peanut butter on there, you know? <laughs> I feel like, whoa, that's, that's too much, you know? Um, and uh, one of the reasons, I, so I joined the military. One of the chief reasons was um, I wasn't going to get to college any other way without my parents going into a bunch of debt and whatnot. Mm. So I decided to join the military. Um, I joined in peacetime, you know, for full disclosure. Um, it wasn't one of those situations where we were in the middle of a war. I felt called to go and serve. That that wasn't me. I joined before all that kicked off. Um, you know, totally joining for the college money. I made the mistake of watching some war movies the week before I signed my contract. So when I got in there, um, at the time, like once you went in with the career counselor to sign your contract and pick your job, the recruiter couldn't come with you and talk anymore. So mm-hmm. I was thinking that we were all thinking I was going to do something technical. You know, I had an aptitude for it. I was always into computers. And I get in there and sit down with the career counselor. He says, your ASVAB scores are high enough. You're going to get maxed out college money no matter what you do. So what do you want to do? And I looked right at him and I said, I want to go infantry. And my recruiter is outside the office going. (laughs) (laughs) So I joined the infantry and I signed my contract, walked out of that office and my recruiter's like, the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> um, but like I said, I was in peacetime. So what year is this? This was I left for basic training June twenty first of two thousand. June twenty first of two thousand. Yeah. Um, and and like I said, uh, it was peacetime. So my vision of my military time was I'll do you know my my term, my four year term or whatever. Um, I'll get out, go to college, use that that college money, and and that'll be it. Mm. Um, and that's like definitely not the trajectory that I took. Uh, 
I was stationed at Fort Myer in Virginia, which is right next to Arlington Cemetery, about a half mile or so straight line distance from the Pentagon. Um, and then uh, I was in the Old Guard, so a lot of ceremonial stuff, you know, standing. We did the ceremonies at the White House and the tomb and things like that. And uh, we were doing riot control training um, near near the ID card office on Fort Myer. Um, because the IMF meeting was coming to town and there was always protests. And one of our missions as, as a unit was potentially responding to a riot or something like that. Mm -hmm. So we're doing riot control training. And uh, one of our, our buddies, uh, Hintala, he comes out of the, uh, the ID card office. that He was in there getting his ID card renewed. And on TV was, you know, the first plane that hit the, the World Trade Center. Uh, and he's like, hey, uh, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. Now, when somebody says that to you, you're immediately thinking like, uh, you know, one of the little Cessnas or something like that. Um, I hate to say it, but we started making jokes about, um, you know, must have been drunk or something like that. Um, and he's like, no, it was, it was an airliner. And that kind of like, everybody got quiet real quick trying to ponder how that could possibly happen. Mm -hmm. um, I think my thought at the time was weather bad plus like navigational trouble or something. I don't know. So we're, we go back to what we're doing. And uh, he comes out again, says, hey, uh, you guys might want to get everybody back to the barracks. Something's going on. Like, what? Another plane hit the World Trade Center. And my, my squad leader at the time uh, says, something's going on. Something's happening. I think we're under attack. And as we're all kind of getting together and getting ready to head back to the barracks, uh, you know, big sound pouring black smoke from smoke from, you know, over the hill, over mm -hmm. the horizon a little bit. Uh, and that was one that hit the Pentagon. Um, so for the first day we like locked down the base, you know, nobody in or out type deal. Um, by then it was very clear that we were under attack. And, uh, from the second day until, until completion, which was a few weeks later on, on the, the site, uh, at the Pentagon, uh, doing, you know, remains recovery and, and, I haven't talked about this in a while. Uh, <clears throat> doing uh, search and recovery. So making sure, essentially, like our mission was everybody that was in there that didn't make it out gets a proper burial. Um, and we, we did achieve that, actually. For, for some, there wasn't much remains, but we DNA tested every piece of organic matter that came out of there, and every single person um, was recovered. So um, yeah, it was a rough time. Um, you know, as, as you might expect. Um, and, and so after that, you know, a lot of us tried to go immediately. Like they said, you know, the intel suggests that it was these guys were going to go in Afghanistan and we're going we're gonna to get them. Uh, I, one of my memories of President Bush was, you know, he's standing there shaking our hand and he leans in next to a couple of us and says, we're going to get these sons of bitches, you know. Uh, oh, can I cuss on this? Yes. Okay. Um, so a lot of us wanted to go. There were so many people requesting transfers that the commander like had to call a formation basically and be like, nobody's going anywhere. We still have to have people here. You right. Know? Um, so nobody's going anywhere. I was coming close to my time being over. Uh, I was a year shy. They used to have a thing where you could leave early if you went to college. So I did that. This was like your third year in. Yeah. This, um, this, this happened. Well, it happened in my... The, the beginning of my second year. In. The beginning of your second year. Yeah, it was September sense. 2001. That makes sense. Um, I got out to go to college. 
Um, and I, I was in college for a couple of years. Uh, and then the thing that they say can never happen happened. Uh, I got one of those letters said, hey, remember how you were in the army? And yeah, well, you got to come back. Because for a certain period of time, they can force you back in. Oh, really? Um, you know, if you start up for four years, for example, you're actually obligated for eight. The last four years are just, they can call you back whenever they need you. Mm. So I got the letter and I spent uh, 16 months in Iraq. And then after that, I figured I may as well stay in the reserves and have some control over my destiny. Um, I ended up doing a total of 17 years in the, in the military between my active time and reserve. Did some time as a drill sergeant. Um, actually, when I met Kirby and everybody, I had just gotten out. Yeah, so that's what I remember. So I was finally done at that point. Um, and working in IT and stuff like that. And uh, then, you know, I got kind of into wrestling almost by accident. What, may, if I may ask, what, sure. was, what was being in Iraq like? You know, um, the best way I've heard it described is, um, you know, I, I went over during roughly when the surge was happening, um, doing a lot of route security, route clearance, looking for IEDs, things like that. It's a lot of boredom punctuated by absolute terror. Uh, you know, like, um, it wasn't the experience I expected, that's for sure. Um, uh, I was glad to have gone. I was certainly glad to get back. Um, I, I felt, you know, a very strong connection to some of the people that we interacted with. And um, so in that way, leaving actually kind of felt bad. Uh, I'm going home where it's nice and safe. Mm -hmm. I'll be in Fort McCoy, Wisconsin in less than a day, you know, laying on some nice cool grass and all these people are still going to be here. Um, I think we did a good job uh, as best as we could. Um, I'd like to think that, you know, I was the kind of uh, non-commissioned officer that my troops could trust. Um, so I was, I was proud. Um, I do have some regrets mostly around like I don't feel like I did enough. There's a lot of guys that had it a lot worse than me. Mm. Not just like in what they dealt with in the tour, but how, how many times they went. You know, I went once. Yeah. I know guys that went five times, you know. So, but you spent 16 months in your one time that you went. Yeah, we got extended. And the crazy thing about it was we found out in the chow hall watching the news. Like our chain of command hadn't even told us yet. Wow. Uh, I took the last slot of like stateside leave. You get, you get some time off in the middle. I took the last slot thinking, I'm going to go home on leave, hang out for a bit, come back, and we'll be getting ready to turn over to the next unit and go home. And then we got back and we're sitting in the chow hall and uh, this person on the news is like, the 34th Infantry Division from, from yeah, from, uh, uh, <laughs> from the Minnesota National Guard uh, will be getting extended and they will be staying in Iraq for at least another three months. Oh, man. <laughs> so, uh, that was not good news. But, you know, such is life. Um, but, you know, all in all, like, it, it was it was scary at times. It was hot. Um, you find ways to uh, uh, kind of keep your mind occupied. I completed another, like, 12 semester hours of college while I was there, um, just online. Um, me and my, my buddy that was a singer in a band I was in, uh, we wrote most of our album while I was over there and just wow. kind of emailing back and forth. And, um, so it was, it was, you know, try to make the best use of a bad situation. I uh, lived in a metal shipping container for a while. That was, it was like an oven. So like, if you didn't sleep right under the AC, you were miserable. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but it was okay. It seemed like your whole 
uh, military experience didn't go the way that you expected it to go at all. No, it really didn't. Um, but I imagine it was rewarding at times. Definitely. Um, you know, especially when I became a drill sergeant, you know, being able to train new recruits and, and, and bring people in, especially there's always that moment somewhere in the middle where these, you know, guys who are fresh out of the civilian world start acting like a team and start getting things and you start seeing the light bulb go off and they're acting like soldiers. And that was always cool to see. So that was like, uh, I tell people simultaneously, like the best and worst job in the military because the, the hours are terrible. Um, it's a high stress job. Uh, the divorce rate amongst drill sergeants is one of the highest in the military. But, you know, you, you almost feel like you have a bunch of kids, you know, like that, that cycle. I've even kept in touch with some of them, you know, um, and seeing how their career develops. And so it's, it's very rewarding, um, you know, high stress too, because, you know, a lot of those guys are going to finish with you and end up deployed soon. And, um, you know, that was always kind of in the back of your mind, you know, am I, am I teaching them good enough to where they'll survive? Mm. Kind of thing. So it was, uh, but it was good. <clears throat> Maybe this isn't a proper correlation, but I'm going to go for it anyways. Was being a leader in that sense, mm-hmm. uh, did that help you when you became a father? Was there some of those tools you learned that may have helped you raise your daughter or some things that you tried to not do or things of that nature? Uh, some of it, yeah. I think, you know, the, the drive to instill good values um, and keep your... You know, the people under your charge, whether they're soldiers or your, your kids safe, um, certainly translates well. I will say that there have been times where my military and training experience has not been so productive, you know, um, in fatherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your, your kid does something wrong, right? You know, if somebody does something wrong in basic training and you're their drill sergeant, you respond one way. Right. Whereas if it's your child, it needs to be different. You know, there's a, a level of nurture that's not there in the military, mm-hmm. sort of necessarily, because the whole goal is to break them down and remake them, you know? Right. Um, and that was a tough thing for me to learn and, and kind of, you know, if I'm being honest, there was times, especially, you know, a few years back where I was much too harsh and strict with my child. Mm. Um, and, and thankfully, you know, like I said, I was able to kind of recognize and turn, turn the course on that. Um, my daughter and I have a great relationship. Um, but there's definitely some of it that, that translates, you know, the, um, having a healthy respect for high standards, you know, um, esprit de corps and, and sort of pride of ownership of anything that you're doing, whatever right. task you're involved in. Those are things that the military is very good at, at teaching. Um, so that, that definitely translates. Yeah. I think you can like, at least when I'm working with people or coaching kids or training or whatever, it's like, on one hand, I have a extremely high standards for the people that I'm, you know, training, coaching, mm-hmm. or, but at the same time, I hold extreme warmth for them as well. Mm-hmm. So when they do fall short of something, it's with love, nurture, warmth, care, and support that I'm saying, this is what needs a little work. I'm here for you. Lean on me. But this is what we expect yeah. from you and what you should expect from yourself because I know you're capable of this amazing thing. Yeah. But when you do something wrong, it's not, you suck, you're the worst, you're a piece of shit go fucking die in a hole, right? right? Which could be useful in certain situations sure. when you're when you're preparing someone for war, right? Yeah. But the when consequences of failure are a little are bit bigger. A little different, yeah. But with your kid or a team or in business or at work, whatever, right? It's, it's not that way. Yeah, right? my, my standard with my daughter, whether it's academics or anything, is, is just improvement and effort. You know, I told... She got some bad grades last year. 
and which we all did. And as a result, because you know the the workload as she moved into middle school was getting harder, mm-hmm. and she sort of panicked because she no longer could just go and ace the tests. Right. You know, she she actually had to study and try. And uh, I think that was shocking to her. Mm. I think she didn't want to disappoint anyone, so she actually got in trouble for cheating on an exam. Wow. And we had a really, a really frank discussion, and I said, look, if you bring me a D or an F that you tried hard for, I'm cool with that. Now, we're going to address the problem, and sure. we're going to step up the studying and stuff, but you will never be in trouble in my house for trying your best and failing. Right. And that's kind of, you know, I said, you know, now you're getting a zero on this test, you know, um... I would have take. I would have rather had you got a fifty, you know. So, but now I think we're to the point where she understands that, and that's sort of an essential difference between military training and um, and working with kids, right? Like military training is, you know, especially in basic training when you're a drill sergeant kind of standpoint. Exactly all the things you said. You're a piece of shit. Get down, do push-ups. Make them hurt. Make them sweat. You don't do that with your kids. Uh, obviously, you'd be arrested. I think if you did that with yeah. your kids. The only time I've ever made my daughter do push-ups was at a show when I was working heel, and that was just to get heat. So. <laughs> but I think there, there also can potentially be a tweak in some of that high-performance stuff where you do show a little bit of warmth to someone yeah. because people do respond better to that. Sure. And when you're trying to create a brotherhood, which I imagine is what you need when you're going to war, like someone who's willing to die for the person next to them, mm-hmm. like you want to you have that sense of love for that person or at least like, I care about you. I know what you stand for. I know what I stand for. We're doing this type of thing yeah, together. Absolutely. And, you know, midway through the cycle, generally, um, I started behaving more like a normal squad leader. Yeah. Less like a, uh, a tyrant, you know. Um, but also one of the important skills that you have to have is the ability to flip the switch off, you know. Mm. And there's a signal for it for a lot of guys is taking the hat off, you know. If I took the hat off, then human me was about to come out. Got it. I remember this one kid, you know, just for an example, he was um, very overweight when he joined, um, but the dude was super motivated. I mean, we would actually have to, like, go look at his plate in the chow hall to make sure he was eating enough because he was so motivated to lose weight that oftentimes he wouldn't eat enough. Ooh, that's not and, and, yeah, so we had to, like, you know, put some more, put some more on that plate, you know. Um, and uh, super motivated, always really, you know, just hard charging, really, really wanted to succeed. And uh, he attempted to conceal that his mom had died. And he didn't want to go home on leave because he didn't want to get recycled and stuff. And it's, you know, that's when the hat has to come off. Look, man, <laughs> there will be another basic training cycle. You yeah. can you can get pushed into the next class. Right. Your mom's funeral is only going to happen one time. You have you know? to go. Yeah. Um, and so situations like that, I had one troop who, I'm out now, so I can't get in trouble for it, thankfully. Um you know, there's very strict rules on contraband. And mm. noticed a change in this kid. Grabbed one of my battle buddies, pulled this kid in the office. What's going on, you know? Turns out his wife is cheating on him and leaving him. Mm. And he's in the office coming apart. And uh, I noticed he was, like, fidgeting with his pockets. And, you know, I knew that he dipped because we found some in his bags when he first showed up. And he's just fidgety and he's anxious and stuff. And... I looked over at Williams. I was like, don't say nothing. And I pulled out my can of skull. <laughs> and it's, you know, 
absolutely not supposed to do that. But sometimes you have to take that hat off and, you know, show the human side. Yeah. Um, and knowing when to do that is important. I mean, not just in the military, anywhere in life. Knowing know. when to break the rules is extremely valuable skill. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, I, I regularly get messages from guys that I trained. That's um, cool. And so I feel like I had a positive impact, for sure. Amazing. And when did um, Amanda come into your life? Oh, man, that was also by accident. <laughs> I, in my, you know, youthful exuberance... Um, let's see, how old was I when I met Amanda? 2008. So I was 26. Mm. And I had already decided I was done with relationships. I was done with serious relationships. I was never going to have children because that's the end of the world. That, that'll, your life's over at that point. <laughs> no way do I want kids. That would be a, a mess. Um, and I had decided that. And I was playing music. Uh, at 26, you decided. At 26, I decided I was never going to have another serious relationship. Never going to have kids. And uh, I was in a band at the time. You know, we were starting to have a little bit of local notoriety, selling some albums, you know, on iTunes and all that kind of stuff. Back when getting on iTunes was kind it was of a, a huge a big deal. deal. Um, you know, one of our last shows before I left, um, we played at Rock the Bayou in front of a bazillion people, you know. Um, you know, sharing a festival with like Rat and Queensryche and things like that. And I was playing in this band and I came home actually from drill sergeant school. Uh, I came home and uh, I just finished, got my hat, came home, went to a party with the band. Uh, this girl and her friend who were like fans of the band were there and they were all super drunk and partying. Um, and I, I think the first thing she said to me was, you're an asshole. That was the first thing that Amanda ever said to me. Um, so fast forward a couple of weeks later, she's at a show and I'm playing, uh, we're at Red Eye Fly in Austin. I don't know if you've ever been to like the Red River and 7th Street, uh, I think so. Austin. uh, Red Eye Fly was a really cool venue. Sadly, it shut down a few years back, but, um, I was playing a show there and I'm playing this guitar solo and Amanda's down there, hot blonde, screaming her head off for me. You know, she's like 18 years old, <laughs> fresh out of high school, living on her own for the first time. And I thought she was cute. And I went down and tried to hit on her. And she's like, oh, I have a boyfriend. And I was like, where's your boyfriend? She's like, well, he's grounded. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. Um, I didn't really think much of it, you know. Kind of got shot down, you know. And with a face like this, I'm used to it. So I was like, all right, cool, you know. Aww. And uh, I, was, I was casually seeing a couple of girls at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, nothing serious. Um. And then a few weeks later, we had another show, and her and her roommate had an after party, and that was actually weird, because we went into this after party, and some of our, like, posters and pictures and stuff are on the wall. Wow. And I was, like, talking to Paul, I was like, dude, are these, are these girls stalking us? And he was like, nah, man, we have fans. That's, that's a thing, you know? And I was like, oh, wow. Um, she had broken up with her boyfriend. Hmm. We... We got together, and I, I fell in love so completely, and almost immediately, uh, I'm like calling these other girls, like I can't see you anymore, and then deleting their number from my phone, kind of deal. Um, and then that was in August. By November, she was pregnant, <laughs> and and in January we were married, and I was volunteering for another mobilization so I could have a health plan so we could afford to have the kid. And that's when I went up to Fort Sill for being a drill sergeant full-time. 
So she was pregnant and having the child while I was doing my first cycle of basic training as wow. a drill sergeant. So a very quick change in my lifestyle back into active duty, um, you know, from playing music. <laughs> uh, but it was a good time. Um, and, you know, difficult, long hours and stuff. But, uh, you know, getting to see my child born, man, like that was wild. And I remember actually the moment at which I realized I really did want to be a father. Initially, I, I kind of had like, I was torn. On the one hand, like I'm having a kid, my life is over. That was like legit what I thought. But on the other hand, the first thing I did as soon as she confirmed the pregnancy was like, I'm on my bank setting up a college fund, you know, like immediately. And uh, I remember we had a, a miscarriage scare kind of early on. And I threw her in the car and I rushed to the hospital. And that was kind of when I realized, like, I really don't want her to have a miscarriage. Like, I I want to be a father. Um, and that, you know, that life-changing. I mean, at the time, I actually, I had a, I hope my mom doesn't watch this. I had a pretty sizable cocaine habit at the time. Uh, and after we found out she was pregnant, I grabbed what I had and threw it in the toilet and flushed it. Was that just a byproduct of being a musician or... Partially, yeah. Or something that you were trying to avoid. I, I thought at the time that it was mostly just about partying and who I was hanging out with. Kind of in, with the benefit of hindsight, that and how much drinking I was doing, it was definitely self-medication. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I deal dealt with and deal still with some pretty heavy, uh, you know, PTSD and depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, kind of in retrospect, looking at how I behaved and, you know, like, oh, well, you could only have fun if you were intoxicated in some fashion, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and, and so, yeah, definitely some self-medication going on. Um, but that's how we got together. And, uh, you know, the economy, after I got uh, done with the deployment, the economy got kind of bad and I moved where the work was. So we went to Northern Virginia, D.C. area, spent some time out there and then moved back to Texas eventually. But, uh, um, yeah, so we were married in 2009 and... Um, we were poor when I got married, you know. Uh, people make comments, because she's much better looking than me. People sometimes make comments like, well, he, he must have money, and she'll turn around and tell him, yeah, but he was poor when we met. <laughs> you know, kind of deal. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing how far we've come, though. Yeah, it is. So, uh, not all of it good, but, you know. But you're here. Yeah, definitely. And together. Mm-hmm. Which That's seems powerful. like... Seems like a miracle. I mean, you were there for a lot of it. Yeah. Um, matter of fact, I was just telling somebody about that match that I had with X where I completely came apart. <laughs> and you and Kirby, you must have sensed it or something. And like, right when we got back through the curtain, you guys were right there. Yeah. So uh, that was definitely a rough time. I had to make a lot of changes. So. Yeah. We'll get there. Sure. Um, but... So now, fast forward uh, to the end of kind of the last part mm-hmm. where you're getting into wrestling. Yeah. So you're back in Dallas. Yeah. Was, Everything's uh, pretty stable in your in your family life at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you want to yeah you want to pursue another dream. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, that was that was funny because I actually did not know. Like I, I sometimes tell people I'm the worst professional wrestler because. I, I, I didn't have that encyclopedic knowledge that some guys do. Like, I watched wrestling during the Monday Night Wars, mm-hmm. and I dug it. And I occasionally watched it after that. Mm-hmm. But not a lot, you know. I didn't even know indie wrestling existed. 
Hey, I was the same way when I got into <laughs> wrestling. So and and um, at the time, I was pretty new to my church, which like we're heavily involved in church now. But back then, we had just started going. Um, I actually wasn't even a believer yet. Um, I was an atheist faking it, and my my pastor knew it. Mm. Um, <laughs> it was one of those like, well, I don't really believe this stuff, but this is how I want to bring my family up. You know, oh, kind of interesting. Deal. And uh, I was trying to make new friends, and and. I was pretty introverted. I didn't talk to people a lot. Um, getting into that church, the floodgates opened. Like, now I can't shut up. But I, I, <laughs> I was very introverted. Um, my wife commented that our first life group at the church, I spoke more in that one session than I had to friends other than her in probably six months. Wow. <laughs> so uh, I heard some guys talking about wrestling, and they were talking about... Um, Something related to the NWO, which like that was that was the bread and butter of when I was watching. Yeah, right? yeah. I was watching every week, and I couldn't wait to see what was going to happen next. And I wanted to make friends, so I went over there and just inserted myself in the conversation. Um, started talking about wrestling with Presley, actually. And it was Amazing. funny because later on, when when Kirby first did the test stream, and he said, "And we really want to thank Fitz for bringing Presley in to do this." and it was the other way around. Presley brought me in, mm. but he was so quiet about it. Presley? Yeah. He, he's such a kind man. Yeah. I love Presley. He's become one of my best friends. Uh, but So it was Presley that, and another guy that we were talking to. And he's like, well, hey, we're going to go see wrestling on Saturday if you want to go. And I'm trying to think, because at the time, Raw was on Monday, and I think they were taping SmackDown, but it was on Thursdays that they taped it. Mm. So I was like... Is it one of the house shows or <laughs> like what? what are you going to watch? <laughs> and they're like, nah, man, it's at this strip mall in Bedford. Amazing. It's an indie show. And I was like, what is an indie show? <laughs> so I, I, I went and Amanda was busy that night. So she said I had to take Brooklyn. I didn't think my daughter was going to like this at all. So I was like, bring your video game. You can hang in the back and do whatever you want. And she loved it. Oh, yeah. And she She very quickly figured out the nature of it but you know how kids are even if they know kind of the nature of it they play along they're still in baby oh yeah and she realized very quickly like when jamie holler talks smack to me i can say whatever i want to in back (laughs) as a matter of fact this morning presley and i were talking and and she's like you don't really you know presley's like brooklyn you don't really watch or follow wrestling anymore and she's like it stopped being fun when jamie quit interesting because he was the only person that ever like bantered with her you know a a lot of these guys you talk smack to them and they just walk away from you right Jamie would get up in your face Um, so I brought her and she loved it and we started going every week uh, sitting right in the front every time we would like race to purchase tickets before John Lugo so we could get in before him and get the good seats Um, and and it just became our thing you know Mm -hmm. and that sort of morphed into um, I went to the intro camp yeah just for funsies I didn't want to do it any more than that. I just wanted to get in the ring and play around. Um, and I actually remember Livy was helping out at training and some of us were falling behind on one of the drills and she's like, come on, how bad do you want this? And I'm like, I really don't. I'm just here for the night. Yeah. You know? Um, and then Brooklyn had her birthday there. They put together a spot where I could, uh, you know, save the day and yeah. body slam Kirby. And I was, I was hooked. I was, I gotta do this. Yeah. Um, so after I got off the night shift at my job, I started training and, uh, you know, the, the rest is history. I, um, I'm still training there as much as I can, you know? Right. Like, uh, and I've gotten to do some pretty cool 
shows. Like my first match with Rodney, I was like, I used to watch this guy on TV, and now I'm in the ring with him. Mm-hmm. You know, like how awesome is that? Um, you know, and, and so it's been really great, but it, it almost just kind of happened by accident, you know. Um, and I didn't think it would even come as far as it has. I thought I'd maybe work MPX for a year and then be done, uh, you know. I mean, I'm a realist. I know that, like, I started way late. And some people are like, oh, yeah, the DDP started late. I'm no DDP, man, you know. Like, I'm not at that level of skill. Um, but it's it's gone further than I expected, definitely. Uh, and it's been a good vehicle for, you know, some of the other stuff in my life, my faith, for example. Um, and working with CWF has been tremendously rewarding in that regard. We get to go, you know, put on a wrestling show and also preach the gospel, you know, which is super cool. Uh, but yeah, I never thought that it would go as far as it has. Uh, so it's exciting. Yeah. And, and, and when you get into wrestling, it always becomes more than just the wrestling. Yeah. Right? The people you meet the feelings that you have, the experience that you that you get, like all of this stuff just becomes much more than just the wrestling, especially when your aspirations are just to do it because you feel like you love it. Yeah. Right? It starts to get clouded a little bit when all you want to do is make it to WWE and all of these things, right? There's no problem with that. I had those aspirations and that drive. Sure. But it, it kind of uh, impeded me from really enjoying what was happening in the moment until I let that go and was like, you know, the last couple of years of my career, I was just like doing it at MPX because I wanted to do it. Right. You know, and that's like really the best part of it. And then the relationships I have, all of the stuff, right? Going to Casey Clay's wedding, whatever, all of these things like are just beautiful byproducts of joining this funky thing. Yeah. This funky thing that a niche people of people love, but they love it and it's cool. And, and you get to come and help out at training and stuff and like, you know, a- I remember when you started showing up and helping out with that, you know, like that had to feel good too. Mm-hmm. You know, you're passing on knowledge. and um, That's yeah, my favorite it, thing about anything is, is coaching, sure. teaching. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's me too. And I, I always seem to uh, gravitate towards that kind of role when I've become good at something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're right. It, it's this weird, funky thing that sort of takes on a life of its own. And, you know, in some ways I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I, I'm blessed with a very, very good, Shoot job, um, which what affords shoot job me for people. That oh, know. I'm sorry, my my non wrestling job. There you go. Um, <laughs> and and because of that, um, you know, there was a period of time where I was getting pretty frustrated with wrestling, and 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 you know, my my wife actually had some great wisdom for me. She's like, the only way you're gonna provide for this family better than you do now with wrestling is is if you are making like big TV star money. Right. So you don't need to put up with things that don't fill your cup. And she said, you remember what Kirby used to tell us? Like, you know, experience, fun, these diff- general categories of how a show is going to reward you. It pays well, mm-hmm. gives you good experience that you want, or fun and interesting. You know, only do the things that fill your cup. Right. And uh, so I started getting more selective about what I would do. Yeah. Um, and that's been... Uh, you know, a tremendously good decision to make. Mm. And, and I don't have the pressure that some guys have where they feel like they really have to kill themselves and grind like crazy. And, and it's a valid strategy for a lot of those guys that are trying to do it for a living. I'm very fortunate that that isn't me because uh, I get to keep doing it for fun and it doesn't have to feel like a job. And when it starts feeling like a job, I can just back off for a little bit. Right. 
So um, I'm very lucky. Very. That's cool. Really cool. And now, now where are you at? You're on Wednesday, right? You're starting this new venture in your life. Yeah, that's uh, exciting. Terrifying uh, as well. Called re-engage. Re-engage. So, um, so you just said that you were, you were kind of an atheist, but doing it because you felt like it was good for your family. Yeah. And that's transitioned all the way into you really believing it in Absolutely. your soul and your heart. Definitely. And, and it's, it's been, also based on some of the stuff you went through. I think that the, having that faith helped you a lot as well. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I, I was a big apologetics nerd. So like my, I won't go too into my journey into oh, faith, right. I guess, but, right. uh, Oh, it's a good thing the top's on. Is it? Yeah, it's on. For a minute, I panicked. Um, but uh, my faith definitely informed kind of how I went through the crisis in my marriage. You know, um, uh, I'm not going to get into too many of the details. Sure. Because some of that is Amanda's story to tell. Uh, but the short version, I'll tell my part of it. Yeah. Um, I, I was a tyrant in my marriage at a lot of times. Um, I was, you know, there's no other term for it. I, I at times, could be emotionally abusive um, and manipulative to get what I wanted. Um, you know, I had a very defined idea of what I wanted my wife to be. Mm -hmm. And when she did not conform to that, um, I was not a good person. And the, the things that we, the, the sins that we visited upon each other, you know, a lot of people don't really realize this, but almost none of that stuff happens in a vacuum. There are very few relationships that fall apart and it's only one person's fault, you know? Um, usually there's something that's a little more public and visible, as in my case, mm -hmm. um, you know, and again, that's Amanda's story to tell. Um, but I, I, I immediately, when everything went down, I felt very culpable and very, um, you know, convicted about my role in it. Because I know, I know that I spent at least three years previous to that pushing her away. Um, thankfully, and, and again, you know, it's definitely a God thing. Um, no matter what I tried to do to correct the situation, it only got worse. I prayed constantly, bring my wife back to me and everything kept getting worse. And it was one of those scenarios where I think it was forcing me to surrender, you know. Um, and finally, one night, uh, completely broken, completely torn down to just the last shred of anything. I th you probably remember at the time, I had lost like 60 pounds in like, gosh, a month and a half. Mm. Um, I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. And just, you know, in complete desperation one night, I went out in the back um, of my, my yard so that my daughter wouldn't hear or see. Uh, and I, I fell to my knees and I said, I was almost mad at God, you know. I said, I don't know what you're trying to do with me. I have no idea. But whatever it is, just let me in. Let me know what it is. Give me some clarity because I can't be all in with the plan if I don't know what the plan is. You know, it's very clear at this point, I'm not going to repair my marriage. So you've got to help me find a way forward. Uh, you know, and whatever it is, like, I will be done kind of situation. And... That was when things started proving. Hmm. Um, you know, Amanda and I slowly started kind of reconnecting. Um, we went to our, we went to a, a couple of counseling sessions and and really just discovered kind of what a marriage really is. 
Um, the thing about marriage that made us want to get into re-engage is that nobody teaches you how to do it. And, and most of us go by example. And if we look at our friends and our family and things like that, many examples of marriages are pretty poor. Um, guys, for example, they love to, and I'll, I'm speaking to that because I am one, um, but we, we, we go into, even when we look into the Bible, we're reading in Ephesians and it says, women, submit to your husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. We stop reading there. Mm. We're like, cool, I'm in charge. All right. And we, we, we ignore the rest of the things that, that God calls us to be as, as, as husbands and as fathers. And, you know, when really there's, there's a whole bunch of richness after that, you know, for example, uh, men are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which considering what we believe about Christ implies complete sacrifice of yourself, whether it's physical in the defense of your wife, which, mm -hmm. you know, everybody has, has uh, thoughts about that. Like if somebody tried to mess with my wife, you know, I'd handle it. I'd be glad to take a bullet for her. You, you take a bullet for her, but you won't hug her and tell her she's doing a good job. Mm -hmm. you know? Which some of those things are the self-sacrifice that, that, that God requires of us. Um, you know, our needs and our desires and wishes, they're not unimportant, but at times as husbands and fathers, at times they have to come secondary to the needs of our, our spouses. Uh, in particular, and one of the best things you can do for your children is love their mother well, you know. Right. Um, and we found Reengage off the recommendation of a friend, and by then we had already been to quite a bit of therapy and really felt like we were in a healthier place. And our first encounter with Reengage, it's a ministry that Watermark does, it's like a 16 week marriage clinic essentially. Yeah. Um, we said, if, if we would have known about this and done it earlier in our marriage, we might have avoided a lot of this. And, and we very strongly felt that this was the first effort that we had seen to really teach people how to be married. Um, but it's not a lot of fluff either. It's very practical. Mm -hmm. you know, the first week, for example, it goes through a whole thing of this is what the standard is for love, according to Scripture. This is, these are all the things that love is. And it talks about all of those things that self-sacrificial... Um, you know, love is an act, you choose to do it every day, and all these different things. And by the end of that page, you're like, you're feeling good. It's almost like a hallmark moment. You're like, this is wonderful. I feel you if you're feeling charged up. And then you flip the page. <laughs> it says, you're incapable of doing this. You are not capable of living to this standard at all times. So the program is all about what to do when you disappoint your spouse. Right. What to do when your spouse disappoints you. One of the, the principles of it is draw a circle <laughs> around yourself and fix everything in that circle. You know, and, and talking about really what God's standard is for us, which is it's, it's one flesh. We are a team. Yes, my wife submits to my will when it comes to a lot of decisions. But the flip side of that is I do nothing, nothing without the wisdom and consent and advice of my wife because we are not separate people in that regard, you know? Um, and so we, we finished the program and, and our church doesn't yet have any couples ministries. We're growing rapidly. Uh, it's something that we have sort of a gap in our ministry efforts and we thought, why don't we do one at our church? And uh, we started getting ready and planning for it and we went to the, the training conference that Watermark runs and I remember praying, you know, God, if this is not what you wanna do, 
because we were we were worried that our enthusiasm for it we would mistake that as what you know God's calling. And if this isn't what you want us to do, please just put an insurmountable obstacle in our way, budgetary, whatever. You know? Right. Um, and then we had a meeting with the pastor and his wife, and they were like, "We'll pay for childcare. We'll pay for whatever you need. Like everything is covered." Um, you know, carte blanche, blank check, do what you need. So it became aligned. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's really great. And we're starting our pilot group uh, on Wednesday, which is sort of, uh, we handpick couples in the church that yeah. are really strong to help us work out the kinks from the program. <laughs> and then after that, about halfway through that, we'll start advertising for the first open to the public group. Yeah. Um, it'll be listed on Watermark's Reengage site. And um, although the program is designed for any marriage that wants some enrichment, you know, there's people... They say, whether you think your marriage is a 10 or a zero, um, you know, the reality is is that most people don't start thinking about those things until they're having trouble. So the whole idea of the pilot group is to hammer out the logistical and technical details so that when people start coming, you can really focus on building those bridges and getting people reconnected. Um, and and I, I, I'm super terrified about it, um, but I really do believe in the program. Oh. It's great. Well, that's on battery, so we should be okay. Well, I mean, we're good here, but that was that was kind of yeah. cool. Anyways, <laughs> so uh, it's raining pretty heavy here in Plano, Texas. So we'll, uh, we'll uh, but we're almost we're almost done, so we should be able to get through. That's that's incredible. That like trajectory of the way your relationship started, the way you felt about kids, then having a kid, that being completely altered and changed going through whatever you went through earlier in your marriage, which yeah. is never easy, and then getting into wrestling, and then having kind of your marriage be a bit public, yeah. right, for, for people to kind of comment and see, like that's also very challenging. Yeah. And then for you guys to then make the commitment back to one another to slowly reconnect mm. and build better relationships with each other, within yourself, with your daughter, and then all basically kind of culminating in wanting to share your knowledge <laughs> with other people yeah. Is, is fucking brilliant it, I mean it reminds me of my own story about why I do this podcast why I do the things that exactly. I do right you take something that was really fucking awful and hard yeah. and challenging and you think to yourself how am I ever going to get through this like where where's the fucking light <laughs> that that's that's the perfect way to describe it you get to a point where you know uh, whether you believe in God or not, you're, you're almost, you're either shouting at God or shouting at the universe. You're like, shouting like, at something. <laughs> when is this going to fucking end? Right. When can I have some relief and some peace? And, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, because when you come out the other side of a tunnel like that, you know, people have come to me and Amanda both. And, you know, as, 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 as public as I was about, like, this is my, my responsibility for it. You know, this is what I was responsible for people gave me more grace than they did her. So mm. she actually had a significantly harder time in that regard. Um, but after coming through something like that or what you have been through, people look at you and they're like, something's different about him. Right. Like, and I know a little bit of his story or I know a little bit of their story. And, and so Amanda and I would get, even before we started talking about re-engage, people would come to us like, hey man, y'all went through some stuff. So if they, if they can do it, Maybe I can. Like, what did you do? Right. How did you get through that? Exactly. So people seek out folks that they know have been in some dark times um, for advice. And, and 
getting more into re-engage was really about like let's make sure we're equipped to help you know we're untrained we don't know what we're doing um, and even now we one of the first things they tell you re-engage is this is not we're not therapists right and if you need that go do it go do it yeah um, counseling therapy you know, is great uh, and it, it was wonders for us but uh, it's coming baby yeah this uh, is nice but same thing with your situation I'm sure people have come to you at various times like hey I know you went through a dark time but you you're out of that tunnel like help me mm-hmm. help me what, what did you what's your formula you know right. of course there's never an actual formula but people see what you've gone through and they want to emulate your recovery yeah um, and I, I think that's why sometimes you know the the age-old theological question why does God allow bad things uh, to happen to good people and sometimes there's no satisfying answer mm-hmm. uh, but sometimes it's so you can help someone else yeah so like yeah, exactly, right? There's there's hope, there's inspiration in, in yeah. sharing the stories, right? That's all yeah. we are as people, right? We're just sharing stories Absolutely. and hoping to bond and get closer with one another through that storytelling. Yeah. And there is no greater appreciation for the light and the goodness that's in your life without coming to terms with the darkness. I, I can come to terms with my own darkness, that I can be mean, I can be vindictive, I can be manipulative, right? But I hopefully have a grasp and a control on those things so I actively am choosing to be kind, to be nice, to be compassionate. So that love is much deeper. But if, I've, if I'm not even aware that I might be able to do bad things yeah. and I'm so naive about it, then the light and the goodness can't be appreciated that much. So that's why those things have to happen. That's why there's the light and the dark, the good and the bad. But we actively are choosing to show the light more because that's what brings people together. That's where the hope and the love and the compassion lies. And I think that's what you're doing with this re-engaged thing that you have going on. Yeah, it's it's really just all about giving people tools to understand that like, we sin against each other, whether it's a spousal relationship or a friendship or whatever, we we sin against each other daily. And, and you know, kind of focusing back on grace and compassion and resisting those temptations to hurt other people, um, asking for forgiveness. One of the biggest changes I made, man, because sometimes, like I said, I'm, I'm not easy to live with. I'm kind of obnoxious and, you know, the difference in, in my wife's mind, who she's a little more sensitive than I am, right? If I say something flippant or off the cuff that, I, I don't mean it to be mean all the time, but mm-hmm. sometimes I did, you know? I suppress that now. I, I feel the urge to. I just want to win the argument. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on the attack. Being able to resist that, but also when you fail, because you will. Mm-hmm. The, the most valuable lesson that we learned was being able to stop and say, "What I just said was not fair. Like whether I'm right or wrong, what I just said was not fair, and I'm sorry." Yeah. And and and. Asking for forgiveness, that is something that we do not get in the habit of, but it's so valuable. Like, will you forgive me? Yeah. You know, because forgiveness is, you know, contrary to what a lot of people will say, both in and out of the Christian faith, this unconditional forgiveness, things like that. Forgiveness is not conditional, or not unconditional. Uh, Even biblical forgiveness, you know. There's requirements, there's mm-hmm. repentance, and there's a mending of that relationship. There's responsibility on both sides. And 
so so coming to terms with that that like my wife doesn't just have to forgive me when I'm a jerk. Right. I have a part to play in that too. Yeah. I have to I have to I have to feel bad and I have to apologize. And there has to be atonement for that somehow. Yeah, and then of course your behavior then has to change following yes. that. Right, because that's the biggest sign of an apology. Exactly. Is at least actively trying to do things differently. Yeah. Um, so that person sees that. Because yep. then they keep giving you these second chances over and over and over again, and that's just a pattern for them. Exactly. And you're just allowing that to happen. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The changes that I made in myself and tried to push forward on the things I knew I had failed my wife at, you know, I started I started pretty much immediately. I was When, when my marriage fell apart, I was crushed. I mean, you were there for some of it. Mm-hmm. I was... I was destroyed, and I started going to therapy. I started fixing some things. Um, even during the time where we were not getting along well, Amanda had a problem with a car, and I just I handled it. Um, and I was losing weight. She didn't know at the time that I was losing weight from like depression and starving myself, but I was losing weight. So like, she actually got mad because she's like, "You're losing weight, and you're going to therapy, and you're doing all these things to to fix the problem. Why couldn't you do that, you know, before?" and uh, my initial impulse was to get mad. Like, I'm doing better and you're mad about it, but mm. she was right. Like, why wasn't I doing those things before? Mm. And that was the single most convicting thing about the whole process, you know, which makes me culpable, Yeah. you know? Um, but that, that's all it, like, again, changing behavior, or at least getting to the point where people see that you're trying. You know, the difference between unrepentant and repentant sin in general is like is there a struggle or are you comfortable with it if you're comfortable with a sin or a behavior that you know isn't right and you know is unhealthy that's all altogether different than an active struggle fighting it removing those temptations the things that make you go back to that bad behavior again and again you know excising those from your life Uh, and it's not an easy process Uh, but I'm hoping that some of what we do with re-engage will, will, you know, activate those parts of the brain that get you kind of contemplating, what is my culpability in this? You know, my wife does this, my husband does this, we love to focus on the other. And re-engage is all about turning it inward. What am I doing here? Extreme ownership. You know, yeah. Responsibility, accountability. I remember telling you one night, like, I'm going to fix this crap that I know is wrong with me for Amanda or for the next one. Like, whether she comes back to me or not, I have to fix this. Right. Uh, and that was, the, that was the turning point. And so we're hoping that through all of this stuff, we can, we can help other people come to that point before they... We were five days from divorce when we finally canceled the court proceedings. Like, we were right down, to the, down to the razor's edge. <laughs> uh, yeah, now you're sharing from experience. Yeah. From all the parts of it. So... I mean, being able to sustain and build a long-lasting relationship is one of the, if not the most precious things we have. Whether that be a romantic relationship, a marriage, a friendship, right? Those are, like, we're not going to do anything great alone, right? We need people. We need our support system. We need people to lean on. We were designed for it. Right? Social animals. That's it. Our body was designed to love and to be loved. Yeah. Simple as that. And I'm, I'm really... Uh, well, one, glad that you came over. It's nice to see you. It's been a while, man. And I'm glad to see this like little glimmer of hope and, and love you got in your eye. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that you're healthy and your family's well. And uh, thank you for sharing like a lot of vulnerable parts of your story. No problem, dude. Like I said, the, some of the stuff that you were doing and the 
not just calling attention to mental health in general and, and you know especially being a man right like we you know I've talked about this before to see a man push into mental health and push into you know the ex- it's acceptable to seek help it's mm-hmm. acceptable to seek affirmation um, you know kind of knowing the when is it time to buckle down and charge through a problem and when is it time to stop and reset and so like I said I, I believe in what you're doing just by virtue of being a male who is saying no like it's cool to be sad and cry you right. know and, and it's cool to seek comfort from others like because uh-huh. man we as men we spend most of our lives suppressing that like I'm not gonna ask my wife to comfort me after a bad day of work because then I'm a bitch you know you know, we we have this cultural indoctrination against it, so yeah. that you know that's why I love what you're doing, yeah. and and I want to be a part of something that does the same. You know, telling men that hey, it's okay to admit that sometimes you're a piece of shit and you need to stop it. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> uh, so I'm I'm glad I could be here for that. Yeah, man. Thank you. Appreciate you. Yeah, this is amazing. Uh, yeah, fantastic. All right, fantastic. Thank you for watching or listening. Sorry about the rain if it kind of constructed the the uh, audio for you, but you know we deal with what we got to do, and I'm glad it's raining because we kind of need it in Texas here. So we for had sure. a little bit of a drought, but hopefully there's no flooding and everyone's all right and all that good stuff. But thank you again for coming back every Tuesday. I really appreciate it. Uh, if you like this, share with a friend or ten friends, and subscribe on YouTube. Give us a review on Spotify or Apple. But most importantly, most importantly, most importantly, please take good care of yourselves and others. See you next time. Lots of love. <laughs>